glasses? Yeah, I've never seen you in those glasses before. Really? No. Oh, maybe it's... They're very appropriate for the film we're going to discuss today. I don't want to brag, but uh, Gustav Klimt had the same frames. It, for what, it, for what that's worth. It's not Chris unless he can get at least one Klimt reference into, <laughs> into each podcast. I have to get rid of my gum. Hold on. Sure. Why don't you read our intro while I'm doing that? Okay, great. Uh, verily. Tis another episode of Full Cast and Crew, one fit for the podcast app which serves the gut. Wait a minute. Verily, tis another episode of Full Cast and Crew, a podcast fit for the podcast app which serves the gods. One might imagine mighty Jove himself chortling as yon co-hosts, like twin Orpheuses, descend via the rocky path demarcated in the Full Cast and Crew section of a film's IMDb page toward a vast underworld of the mind, where they might cavort, amongst otherworldly trivia, golden coincidence, and delight in the most esoteric of digression. And when the meaning of the film is rightly showed, thou have reached the end of this new episode. Wow, did that rhyme? Uh, just the last couplet. Interesting. You know, Chris, it occurred to me also that um, perhaps we should explain to the listeners what the procedure, the preparation is for each episode. Chris and I pick a movie. We see the movie individually, not together. Yes. We don't talk to each other about our reactions to the film before we meet to tape the episode. We, we stay away. I try not even, to. We avoid it. I try to we avoid, avoid the you <laughs> as much as possible. So that has nothing to do with the podcast. For better or for worse, it may not even be the best way. We just come together and then we they, then we jump right in. Before we start, Chris, I have a couple of housekeeping things for you. Fantastic. Um, do you remember that in our Widows episode, you were very down on the shot of Colin Farrell inside the limousine? Yes. Well, today, Chris, that shot was chosen as one of the 10 greatest shots of 2018 by a uh, variety magazine. Just thought you might like to know no, am, that you stand interested. outside the critical norm. Warms my heart. Do, would you like to know what the number one shot of the year was deemed to yes, be? Yes, please. It was a shot from Hereditary. Did you see Hereditary? I did not see Hereditary. So, I, I want to see it. It's, it's a pretty crazy one. But right now, Chris, we are on a roller coaster of slavish film devotion, which does not allow me any time to recreationally watch films because right. all of my free time is spent watching movies watching, for the full cast and crew podcast. We don't want to see. We simply must see for you. Today, we're going to discuss Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a 2018 American biographical comedy drama film directed by Marielle Heller with a screenplay by Nicole Holof Center and Jeff Witte, based on Lee Israel's 2008 memoir of the same name. It stars Melissa McCarthy as Israel and follows her as she tries to revitalize her failing writing career by forging letters from deceased authors and playwrights. It received acclaim from critics, with both McCarthy's and Richard E. Grant's performances being praised. The film was named by the National Board of Review as one of the top 10 of 2018, while Grant won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Supporting Actor. It is a film that's been described as catnip for the bookish, Chris. With those glasses, I'm going to assume you are the target audience for this movie. You seem like a guy who would prowl the dusty bookshelves of the Argosy bookstore. Yeah, I've been known to uh, walk through the stacks. You've been, you've been known <laughs> to page through an old tome. My stereotype of both you and myself is that you would be so into this movie and that I would not be so into this movie. Am I true to my self-belief? Um, actually, what do you think of, this might be a tough question to, for me to formulate. What do you think about your own stereotype about yourself? <laughs> what is the thing that you think you would not uh, like I, about it? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this since I watched the movie because I'm alternately concerned that it represents a deep-seated character flaw um, but there's a certain tonal pitch to some movies, which really, really, really irritates me. Mm -hmm. And no matter how, and I have a lot of pleasant and positive things to say about this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I enjoyed some aspects of it a lot, but the parts of it that bothered me really bothered me. I don't hate the movie. I'm not here to hate on the movie, but when I watched it, I was really fucking irritated as the days went by, um, I calmed down a bit and I started to examine what is wrong with you that you get so irritated by something as innocuous as a movie that's just trying to do its little storytelling. Yeah. I'm not sure I have any answers. You can quiz me, but. Uh, I guess, you know, the simplest question is like, what were some of the things that irritated you? <sighs> okay. I am all for a movie about a misanthrope. 
Okay. I'm all for a movie about someone who is consumed by their own negativity and who does not move through the world with any kind of ease and has difficulty navigating the everyday. I'm all for that. But if you're going to give me that character, and that's very much the character at the center of this movie, a character that I am asked to have sympathy for by the movie, even though, and we can talk specifically, there are some very key scenes where people in the movie do not have sympathy for this main character. Those are the parts that I liked very much. So the characters that I liked very much in the movie were the people that were not buying Lee Israel shit. Mm -hmm. However, the movie kind of buys Lee Israel shit. And I thought, get over yourself, go get a fucking job and like stop pretending that you are entitled to some lifestyle and living just because of your squandered talent and presumed education. So the central conceit of the movie really irritated me because it never paid off why I should give a shit about this person, why her story matters. Let me just ask the follow-up then. Uh, what is the stereotype about me that you thought I would uh, respond to? Well, I think, although this is a auditory medium, <laughs> those, take those, this, these those, glasses those eyeglasses that you're wearing <laughs> do not. Chris is wearing the most bookish of all possible eyeglasses. Yeah. If Harold yeah. Ross could be wearing eyeglasses in the New Yorker offices of the 1920s and 30s, they would be these. He might well have been. These are classic frames. You probably purchased those uh, at a vintage store for their verisimilitude to a 1920s lifestyle. I would have. I think these are sort of more updated knockoffs or <laughs> modern knockoffs. No, I think of you as someone who enjoys a life of the mind, who enjoys... Uh, thinking about intellectual concepts, who would browse bookstores and first editions, bookish, as they say, yeah. which which I don't think when they say it's cabinet for the bookish, this is another distinction. And maybe this is not where I would put you. I would put you in the more positive version of what I'm about to say. But I think when they say it's cabinet for the bookish, I don't think they just mean people who love books and love reading and love learning new things. I don't think that's what they're talking about. I think they're talking about a very specific slice of quote unquote, bookish people who might occupy a very specific slice of New York City life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the irritation lies for me. Yeah. I don't think you occupy that slice, but I think you might be more interested in what happens to those people who occupy that slice than I would. I am 100% with you. And I, um, I think <laughs> this for sort of a, a for some uh, intellectual gymnastics. Yes. I think every, the way you're describing me is correct. And because of that, I hold such things to like a higher standard. Mm -hmm. The fact that I knew that this would be about bookish literary types, it's going to have to do a lot to actually get into my good graces. Things so you have a predilection against those bookish types that I am ascribing a appreciation to you for. In some way, I am. I think I'm a lot easier on things that I don't feel a direct connection to okay. than I am for something that feels either closer or something that's I understand. of particular interest to me. That being said, I think I liked the movie more than you. Part, I mean, mostly because of the two lead performances. And I thought it did wrestle with, I agree that there was too much sympathy asked for for her, but I think oh, by the end of the movie, she's beginning to awaken to her own self-involvement, which is, I think, what the movie is more about th than anything else. Lee Israel thinks it's about her squandered talent or about a world that doesn't appreciate her. But then by the end, and particularly with uh, a conversation with her ex-girlfriend, it's like, no, <laughs> it's your own self-involvement that is leading to you to these things. A problem with the film, potentially, is the fact that that bears very little relation to the actual Lee Israel, who apparently had no um, awakening towards, <laughs> towards self-reflection or self-consciousness towards the end. Well, let's take a look at the trailer. Just these. I don't want the others. Come on, man. I slept these all the way here. There's people waiting. You know, you don't have to be so disrespectful. You've actually carried my books here. And you are? Lee Israel. Oh, we have copies of your latest work right over there. Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Craig, no problem. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. Recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. 
The eye can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it priceless. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve it, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <laughs> this is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we going to do? Gamble? Shop? Drink? <laughs> Mrs. Israel, let me have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh -oh. What seems to be the problem? People are on alert. Your name's been put on a list. On a list? They're literary treasures. One of a kind. It's my writing. You're impersonating other people. Nobody's buying Lee Israel letters. There have been some forgeries going around. Do you think it's real? Looks that way. Good. You're stealing from me? Come on. Get out of my house! That's just supposed to be something more than this. We're probably looking at some time behind bars. What? I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. You know, in a lot of ways, I'm interested in seeing the movie reflected in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the movie that I watched. Uh-huh. In the two days since I watched the movie, I focused my anger and criticism. It's the screenplay. I really liked the director. I liked the way it was put together. It has sort of a old-fashionedness, but in a contemporary sense. Mm -hmm. Like, loved the set decoration and production design. But it's the script that fails to get at something that was right there to me for the taking with this character. And- Glimpsed at it, the scene you mentioned with Anna DeVere Smith was fucking hilarious yeah. and great because when you need it the most, Anna DeVere Smith shows up and is not buying any of Lee Israel's bullshit, her manipulative tactics, her sad sack use of her cat's death, which both is a hugely traumatic event for her, but the fact that she instantaneously uses it to selfishly try to get back with her ex-girlfriend yeah. who does not give a shit whatsoever. That was great. I, I, some more of that would have helped quite a bit for me. Mm -hmm. Did you read a lot about the story about in real life yes. uh, about her? Because I read a little bit of it. I was confused about the choices of what was kept and what was yes. left out. The trailer seems to, to imply that it's going to be kind of a... Um, a sort of a cozy mystery mm -hmm. of these forgeries and, you know, and, yeah. and will she get caught? The movie doesn't really deal with that all that much. But then ultimately the, the crime itself, she moves from forgery to stealing letters and then selling them. Right. Which, and I believe it's the forgeries that start getting her in trouble in the film. But reading about it, it was that somebody found that they were stolen letters. And I think that that's a, a real big difference. <laughs> yeah, you think? Do you think that the filmmakers had too much sympathy for Lee Israel? Is she presented to us in this movie as somebody that somehow embodies a wronged artist who was unfairly treated by an industry that she then turned on itself? I almost feel like that's what I'm supposed to walk away here. Like, and she's unappreciated. I mean, that, that yeah, to but me is- Why am I supposed, what should we appreciate her for? Again, you know- Her right, biography of fucking some- Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder, and, yeah, or like that. I'm with you because I think the, the movie, it starts out telling us how talented she is, but yes, that talent is assumed. I did think it lets her off a little bit easy, though in this case, it lets her off easy by again, implying a certain amount of um, like sort of in the kingdom of her mind and of her soul, the fact that she pulled it off, the pride she seems to have gotten from that seems to be what makes us sympathetic. No, that's listen, Another issue that I have with this movie, you are an embittered drunk and it's never confronted in the movie. It's never handled with any deftness to say that there's a sad, wounded, hurt person inside and here's why she's sad, wounded, and hurt. That's all we would have needed to gin up some of the sympathy that the movie seems to give this character. We're never told anything about her life. 
or what, which preceded the movie. Like, not even the fact that her books, you know, there's an interesting anecdote about that Estee Lauder book specifically. Right. That she says she turned down a certain amount a of- bribe. A bribe to <laughs> not publish it, rushed to finish it when uh, Estee Lauder's autobiography came out. They came out at the same time and sort of canceled each other out. She kind of ruined her career with that. Like that to me is a fascinating, sure. like an active choice. And, and the fact not that they didn't- mentioned once in the movie. No. You're totally right. Estee Lauder tried to bribe her essentially and she turned that down in a fit of peak and moralistic uh, backbone is the way it's presented in the writing about her. It's not even mentioned in this movie. Yeah. I'm unsure whether the movie ultimately by the end has sympathy for her. It sort of- It wants you to at the end in the court scene, that treacly court scene, which which they conclude the trailer with. I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. That proposition right there is what really irritated me about this movie. Yeah. Is like- These are the best days of your life. So taking advantage of everyone around you who purports to care about you, committing crimes, being unrepentant, those are the best days of your life? Really? Like she hasn't learned anything. I guess why why is there a movie about her? I do think that there was, that came across to me as sad and pathetic. She's like, wow, to think like, wow, the best days of your life are a life when you're pretending to be somebody else and you're harming everybody around you. That's the only joy you're able to get in your life. That to me is that to me is very sad. And I actually do think that Melissa McCarthy's performance of that thing, it was not as sort of um, rousing in her taking pride. There seems to be something she recognizes how pathetic that is. No, and they film think, her very stripped down and makeup free in that scene. Yeah. And I think we are meant to... I, I guess we're meant to see that that's that, that's her own pathos. That's her like. I guess it's saying you're saying it's saying to the viewer, we trust you enough to understand this is not a celebratory scene. This is still a really sad scene of someone who didn't get it. You're that's that's okay. well put. Yeah, but when going back to the question of what we're told about the character and the sympathy that we have in the beginning. I wonder how much this has to do with who the filmmakers felt like their their audience was. Oh. That there's just sort of like an assumption, like I can you, tell you, you I can tell you who the audience is. Store people who wear the kind of glasses I wear and uh, <laughs> have a sort of romanticized idea about things of like about the writer, about a writer, about the sort of getting drunk and like yeah, and are willing to stuff. overlook all the real life consequences of those very actions that they lionize. Exactly. Yes, I can tell you exactly who the audience is, Chris. The audience is Upper West Side, New York, rich white people who go see this movie at Lincoln Center Cinemas and then stop by Cafe Luxembourg afterwards for dinner and pretentious conversation. I guess those people need movies too. I was going to say- <laughs> More power to them. I mean- But you know what? Hey, Keep, they're not hurting anybody that they realize. They're hurting me. <laughs> but let me talk about what I thought was great. Love Jane Curtin's performance in the very beginning of the movie. Like- a more interesting movie would have been to spend more time in the world that Jane Curtin lives in, which is obviously the real world. Mm -hmm. Her character is in the real world, is telling Lee Israel the truth. And less time in Lee Israel's sort of sodden world of desperation and bad choices. But those two never again meet. After Jane Curtin has that one scene where she just basically sets up why Lee Israel is on the outs. Mm Mm-hmm. She never reappears in the movie, and the industry, as reflected by her, never reappears in the movie. Yeah. That's that's one sort of problem that I right. have. Right. Lee Israel chooses sort of a life of crime, and like, yeah. and that's that that's the world we're in for the rest of for the, the rest the of the movie. movie. And I would have liked a little more tension between those, but I thought Jane Curtin was so good. I loved Steven Spinella. Yeah, <laughs> was so fucking good as that simple role. And that's like an example of a role that probably isn't much on paper. Yeah. But his little excited posturings and seatings and facial expressions and his beard and glasses, he was so fucking hilarious. And every time he was on screen, I was riveted and I was really interested. Um, And Anna DeVere Smith, as we mentioned, not coincidentally, like those are the really the three people in the movie that are telling Lee Israel, you're full of shit and you need to get over yourself. Yeah. I liked all three of those people in this movie. I thought Melissa McCarthy did a did a good job. So it's hard to like put blame on the actor for what to me feels like a lack of depth in the screenplay in places. Yeah. She absolutely embodies this person very well. She can be an interesting actor and I would relish seeing her do additional dramatic roles that yeah. ask more of her than this movie did. Richard E. Grant is good, but as a Richard E. Grant fan, I think it's a victory lap. I think it's time 
to honor Richard E. Grant in the eyes of various academies and 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 awards boards, which is great. I hope yeah. he wins and gets a lot more work as a result. And I would like to see more movies directed by uh, Mariel Heller. Mariel Heller, because I think she does have a really interesting visual kind of style that I would love to see applied to some stronger material. And I'm sure we will. This is a young filmmaker who I think has made one other feature. Yeah. Diary of a Teenage Girl. Yeah, I didn't see that. Oh, that sounds interesting. Here's a little fun fact about that. This is another entry in the I didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> so Mariel Heller, before doing the the film of Diary of a Teenage Girl, they did a stage adaptation. Okay. That was here in New York. The story did you audition for her? Well, The Diary of a Teenage Girl is about this girl growing up in San Francisco in the 70s, and she gets into a relationship with her mother's- Stepmo- Stepfather. Either stepfather's yes. or mother's boyfriend. She's 35. So I auditioned for that role, uh, and I didn't get it, which is too bad. That's probably because good. Diary of a Teenage Girl It's is, probably better that you don't embody a 35-year-old guy you would have an affair with a 13-year-old. Well, I'll tell you- the guy who did get it, I believe, is the guy who played the final bookstore owner. Wait, that's her. That's that's Melissa McCarthy's husband, Ben Falcone. I think Ben Falcone was the guy who, throughout the movie, is um, the easy touch, right? Who is buying stuff? No, that's Steven Spinella. Steven Spinella is the one who has the beard and is like has the friend who was friends with Noel Coward. Yes. And then Ben Falcone is the one in the East Village bookstore with the longish hair who tries to hit her up for a five thousand dollar bribe. Right. Yes. And then there's a, a, a still third guy with longish hair. At the very end, she goes to a new bookstore because she had seen one of her letters that she had forged in the window. Oh, wait, you mean the very end? The guy, he's the one who takes the Dorothy Parker letter out of the window and puts and it decides back. Oh, she does guy. go into him, yes. That, that's, so the that's the guy who got so the he part. Play, he got that part, uh, and then he got he this looks, part. He does look more like that type of guy than you do. You have a more, <laughs> well, you. I'll, you have a more inherent decency. Again, I would have liked the role, but uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll take you know take what I can. And get. there you have it, another edition of I, I didn't, didn't get, get it. it. But one of the things that I was so excited about that was not only it seemed from the script it seemed great. Diary of a Teenage Girl was actually a graphic novel. The idea of adapting that form to stage was particularly interesting. But it uh, didn't happen. Well, listen, Chris, every no is one step closer to yes. And you know what? You should just start making up things and putting them on IMDb because obviously one day they could make a movie about yeah, you. You ain't kidding. Like, you know, you know we've who was what's the name of the guy that we were talking about um, who did the Howard Hughes, not not Melvin. Not Melvin, but the, the other one guy. who did the Yeah. Uh, I know you're talking about. And uh, James Fry, a million little James pieces. James Fry, he yeah. Seems to, you know. I was on to James Fry, too. I do love a good hoax like that. Sure. And I think around the time of a million little pieces, there were a few. Uh, like, I remember listening to um, a public radio show where they had a whole hour devoted to this woman who had written this book about, like, growing up in, like, a Native American gang. <laughs> yes. I remember that one. <laughs> I listened to the whole thing. And then less than a week later, that same radio show on up. point out of Boston was like, yeah, we got to apologize. We, because uh, <laughs> it had come out that this woman had made up this whole story. And so then they did a, an episode about literary hoaxes because they had just been. We were hoaxed. Yeah. A bunch of literary types were hoaxed. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series, Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass for stealing my twisted tees. You know who I felt really bad for in this movie, Chris? I know. I do. Do you know who I'm going to say? I'm. I'm guessing that it was the character I believe uh, who was played it's by not the Dolly. actress Dolly Wells. It's not Dolly Wells. Then who I'm, earned my ire for uttering the immortally insipid line? Ooh, I love Fanny Bryce. Yeah, Fanny Bryce. Fanny Bryce, the yeah. greatest vaudevillian of her day. Who doesn't want to read about that? Which I think is uh, even a line in there. <laughs> Somebody does express that uh, sarcastically. Yeah. That's the world we're occupying. Nobody who walks around and goes to work for a living knows who that is or <laughs> says, I love Fanny Bryce. Wait, okay. First of all, you can't dump that on poor Dolly Wells. That's the- Well, not the actor. I, I'm saying okay, that the- I'm saying that sure. Dolly I Wells, you I meant like, that, like very much. Because of the way she had delivered it. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I love Dolly Wells. She's really good in this movie. Yeah. Although I, there is zero chance that she would actually be attracted to this sad sack presented to her. So this God, romance- in the 90s. People loved sad sacks oh, back then. Oh, God. The person I felt worse for, the worst for in this whole movie, the cat. The cat that had to live in a feces-strewn, urine-soaked apartment. 
that's who I felt bad for. Yeah. I, I mean, I am with you. And, and I do think that, I don't think that that became the raison d'etre of the movie, which is too bad because I think that that was the most interesting thing about it. This semi-romantic sad sack character like romantic, yeah, the same attraction that literary people seem to think like, oh, this oh, so hard drinking, and down alcoholic wreck is is a virtue. That's where great art comes from. But what I'm saying is that I think that it was good and that it was taking some of the piss out of that. I don't know. I, I feel think like it, it started with that. I think it was kind of was celebrating some, that. I don't know because like he's spoiler. Oh, <laughs> that was actually a bit of housekeeping. Somebody did mention like you know, you say spoiler alert so often, except in the Widows episode. <laughs> and you friggin' ruined it for Why? What? Oh, because, well, we never said spoiler alert that Yeah. Oh, well. Or, hey. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> I, we have a two-week rule. Widows would been, had been out since August. Yes. So. Well, but it, it was very funny that the person was like, yeah, I really enjoyed the, uh, <laughs> really enjoyed the podcast up until it ruined the movie, ruined for, the movie me. for me. <laughs> when thinking about the movie and what it was about, at first, I was thinking it's about somebody whose talent is unappreciated. And then I thought about the scene where she's feeding the cat shrimp just before the cat goes yes. to the hospital, <laughs> which made me think like, She poisoned oh, her own cat she, by accident? Yeah. Or if not poisoned, certainly yeah, indulges the cat too much. Like the cat's in terrible shape yeah, because- Her own self-centeredness. Her own self-centeredness because she's like, yeah, oh, I'd, I'd love to please the cat in this moment. I'm not going to think about the fact that this probably isn't good for the cat or I'm not going to- uh, clean up the cat's shit. Like what it's doing to demystify that type of character, it does a little bit too subtly. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, like I wish that actually somebody would have mentioned the smell. Where they At one point they go into the apartment and they're like, oh, that smells gross in here. This is terrible. And, Richard, and she doesn't even notice. And she doesn't even notice. Um, I actually would have liked to have that have happened a bit earlier. Maybe, yeah. That Only because then, yeah. just to give us, give a little bit of balance of, again, yeah. I think you're right. I think I would have probably been a little more on her side as someone who had more a sense of like just not getting it or being in her own world, but not being maliciously or malevolently so. Yeah. However, the movie starts with the most malicious, malevolent behavior that it, it and again, I love a great anti-hero. I love a great, you know, um, I keep thinking of like, what's the David Thewlis movie, um, you know, that was really Mike hard. Lee, uh, Mike Lee Naked? Movie. Uh, naked, you know, really hard to watch, but ultimately like heartbreaking. Now this is a very different type of movie. I get it. Yeah. But another movie that this reminded me of that I thought handled something like this better was Shattered Glass. Shattered Glass has a literary hoax at its center. It has a, a not sympathetic character at its center. And it also has like the industry that surrounds this, this person and allows this person to get away with fabricating the stories, which is what Stephen Glass did in the true story that Shattered Glass is based on. The differences are Hayden Christensen brings this character to life with, some, with, with a lot of dimensionality. And I think it's also helped that the character is much younger. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain naivete as opposed to a later in life embittered kind of like, I'm doing this because I have literally no other choice, which is how it's presented in the movie when I'm mm -hmm. sorry, there's a lot of other choices that could have been made. But also Shattered Glass is kind of grounded in this reality that's so well embodied by the other people in his industry. And that's a movie about an unsympathetic central character who does some terrible things within the context of, you know, writing fake articles for the nation or wherever the hell he worked. Yet it has sadness and humor and sympathy and lack of sympathy in it, and it does a really good job. I want to play you another clip, Chris. Great. This is the clip where Jack Hawk and Lee Israel meet for the first time in one of the great locations in this movie, uh, Julius's Bar. Going through. Lee Israel. It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you. We were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book card. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg? Right? Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused those two. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. Right 
I just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh, teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. Can I buy you a drink? Even though you're the posh writer. Thank you. Craigie, yeah. top up. Now, what's interesting in that scene, and maybe you can answer this for me, Chris, when he makes the joke about maybe she died or maybe she got married, had twins and moved to the suburbs, I can never tell the difference, is the joke on him and Lee Israel that they actually think being in a relationship and having children and, and moving outside the city is a death or is the joke on people who choose to do that? I think it's more the former. You do? I really do think that it's the former because by now, and one- I feel like in a movie theater where this played in New York City, people would be laughing at that joke in sympathy with those characters, not in mockery of them. Yeah, well- I mean, there's a certain sympathy of wanting it to be true, but the people who are watching the movie, like you said, the, the exact audience of it, they got kids. They got, you know, they're they're rich media types that have that have settled. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. But what about? I think that there's a consciousness of it, and one of the things that I, I is is my guess. I also think that because it's Richard E. Grant playing that role, this almost seems like an unofficial <laughs> sequel to With Nail and I, in the sense of like. That's, you know, this might That's well where be that how that character, character would have ended up, you know. So, and I do think we've seen seen that exchange. So many of these types of characters, it is early in the movie where I still think that the that the um, director assumes that we are on Lee Israel's side as a some, some sort of counterculture rebel. Uh, that by seeing this, you know, perfectly nice exchange, but it's kind of trite and kind of mean-spirited, like... It's we've heard the joke before, and it's old. And I do think that 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 is part of it. That again, Richard E. Grant, even the character of John Hawke, he delivers it with panache, and it is enjoyable to to watch them enjoy each other. But I think for somebody now in 2018 watching that, I think we've heard that joke before, and it actually looks a little sad. It's the be you know, the beginning of seeing that they're kind of um, pathetic. Maybe the movie was much too subtle for me, and it's in its cues to feel badly for these people and their delusions of self. I mean, if that's what they were going for, maybe. Um, I certainly missed that layer. Like I, yeah. I took it very much that the that we are supposed to be in cahoots with these two as they scamper and caper through the movie. And indeed, I mean, the scenes where they make these juvenile prank phone calls, um, and 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 get their revenge, quote unquote. Um, I, I mean, gosh, if the movie is is showing us immaturity and um, the very things that are holding these characters back from the things they want in their lives, then they should have turned the 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 dial up two more notches yeah. in the <laughs> obviousness meter so that I could have gotten it. Um, but. I, I never had the feeling that that's what the movie was doing. That's why, I guess at the very least, I would say, to me, it's a failure of the screenplay to adequately put forth the version of these people that it wants me to believe in. I'm yeah. left a little asunder. Um, and the the ending sort of just shot right up and like, boom, here's our courtroom soliloquy scene. And then the very next scene, she's like out and about. All of a sudden, Jack Hawk has AIDS and is dying. I'm not sure where how quickly that occurred or there's no time card that's passed yeah. here. I wasn't sure where we were in that scene at the end. I think I saw those things. I agree. It should not have been quite as subtle as it was. Like, for example, there's the scene where they make like the prank phone call to yes. the neighbor. When they're making that, you see Jack Hawk with a bed sheet around him instead of a coat. Uh, sure. There's another scene that like, I think- after Things are getting worse for Jack. Scene, yeah. Like he, he is not, he's not going home to his- to a Noel Coward life. He is going to oh, sleep absolutely. in a garbage can if he's lucky. And, and actually when they first meet after the scene we just played, um, he walks her home and then she says, you know, where do you live? And he says, oh, just a few. He says something completely unsupportable, like as if they, as if they wouldn't then have a conversation about how he lives in the exact neighborhood she lives yeah. in. But he says like, oh, just a few houses up or something. And then of course she turns around and watches him and he has nowhere to go. Yeah. He just kind of looks around and then walks out. So I like that. I thought there was, there is something there to those characters. There is something there to people who are kind of lost in their own image of themselves. And you're right. Part of what's amazing about Richard E. Grant is <clears throat> connecting this performance to With Nell and I and thinking, 
that this this could be where that ended up. Yeah. Um, but it just, you know, just didn't quite pull together in all the, the ways that I would have hoped for. I'm glad that you're referencing with Noah because I sort of thought of dramatically refusing to go forward with the taping of this episode. <laughs> if you were going to sit here and tell me you had not seen with Noah and I, I have, I've only seen it once. Have you seen how to get ahead in advertising? Not Jason, just so you don't feel unappreciated. Not only have I seen it, I saw it because you recommended it. Wow. Really? Yeah. When like, did I do that? Years ago. No, no, it was certainly within the past year. Huh. And I, I can't remember how it came up. I think maybe I might have been pitching something about somebody growing a second head. And you were saying, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Something along You know, that. as one does in the <laughs> office environment that we work in. Oh, Chris, you can't pitch something where yeah, someone so grows a been, second head. That's already been idea. done been by done. Bruce Robinson in 1985. One of the unintended benefits of Can You Ever Forgive Me is it's sent me back down the Bruce Robinson rabbit hole. There's a book just called Smoking in Bed, and uh-huh. it's conversations with him. And he very famously has... I think a bunch of interesting and funny encounters with Hollywood that did not appreciate his uniqueness as a writer, as an actor. He's had some pretty funny uh, encounters with famous movie people trying to take advantage of him uh-huh. sexually. In fact, the character in With Nell and I that's played by Richard Griffiths is based on Franco Zeffirelli. Oh, wow. And- so Robinson, who's a very attractive man, you can see in this yes. photograph, he's a very striking person, uh, apparently received unwanted amorous attentions when he was a young actor from Franco Zeffirelli, allegedly. Wow. And early in Withnell and I, there's a scene in the apartment where Withnell's reading from an article that's entitled Boyland's Plum Roll for Top Italian Director. I think that also is a reference to right. the sexual abuse. Anyway, uh, let's play that clip from the movie. Trying to believe that Withnell is right. We are indeed drifting into the arena of the unwell. Wasn't much in the tube. Nothing left for you. Why don't you ask your father for some money? If we had some money, we could go away. Why don't you ask your father? Can it be so cold in here? Like Greenland in here. We've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution to this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the states of a bum. I mean, look at us. Nothing that reasonable members of society demand as their rights. No fridges, no televisions, no phones. Much more of this I'm going to apply for Meals on Wheels. What happens to your cigar commercial? That's what I want to know. What happened to my cigar commercial? What happened to my agent? Bastard must have died. September, it's a bad patch. Rubbish. I haven't seen Gilgit down the Labour Exchange. Why doesn't he retire? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, he lands plum roll for top Italian director. Of course he does. Probably on a tenner a day. And I know what for. Two pound ten a tip and a fiver for his arse. And you do that What are you talking about? The thermostats, what have you done to them? I haven't touched them. Then why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze! I wouldn't drink that if I asked you. Why not? Because why not? I don't advise it. Even the wankers on the side. <laughs> that's worse than meth. Nonsense. This is a far superior drink to meths. The wankers don't drink it because they can't afford it. <laughs> we got any more? Liar. What's in your toolbox? <laughs> Liar. You've got antifreeze. You bloody fool. You should never mix your drinks. <laughs> God, that scene is so indicative of the brilliance of Bruce Robinson. Like, the writing is so fucking good and sharp. The character development is handled yeah. with with both visual and just little verbal cues. And then Richard E. Grant. I mean, there's just nobody that could have played that role in that way. It's just hilarious. It's so amazing for a guy who I, I don't think of him as a household name, and yet he is unmistakable. And 
no, like you said, nobody else can play that part. Nobody else can play the how to get any part yeah. he has played. It becomes very difficult to to imagine anybody else doing. You know what's interesting? I was reading about him, and one of the things that's very unique about him is his accent. He grew up in Swaziland. Yes, and he says that his voice is because when he grew up, Swaziland was like. He says in uh, his Wikipedia entry that it was mired in a 1960s sensibility. The kind of English spoken where I grew up was period English sound. When I came to England, people said, how strange. And the guy who directed Brideshead Revisited for television told him that you speak English like someone from the 1950s. And that that definitely is part of that Richard E. Grant thing. It's yeah. sort of a stylized, almost affectation, but it's not really... A, and in this this role, it works perfectly well because yes. someone who is putting on airs and affectations, even as he's at the lowest of the low. But man, watching that scene and watching a couple of the clips that I selected from How to Get in Head in Advertising, the sheer amount of dialogue he's handling and the blocking that he's doing in terms of like roaming around a room and picking up props and rubbing creams on his body. The beginning of that scene, he's he's rubbing a heat cream all over his his largely bare body right. in order to stay warm. One guy with a, with a coat open <laughs> and the sleeves rolled up. Instead of putting on clothes, even closing the coat, putting... <laughs> it's great. And he uses up the entire tube of heat cream and then casually tosses it in, in front of the other guy and says, like, there wasn't much in the tube. There's none left yeah. for you. I mean, God, that's just such good writing. Yeah. Um, and when you... You know, With and I is so iconic, and you're right, that it's strange when you look at Bruce Robinson's IMDb page and you think, God, why haven't I been watching movies written and directed by this guy for years? Yeah. Um, maybe the answer lies in the book that I'm going to read, uh, where he sort of talks about some of his travails with Hollywood. That's is it probably where, besides Smoking in Bed? No, that's the Smoking in Bed interviews with it. Bruce Robinson that just sort of tells you some of... Um, you know, I always hope with with questions like that that he that in some ways Bruce Robinson would be what Lee Israel wanted to be. That he hasn't worked more because he's like, no, this is what I want to do. If you're not interested, I've got plenty of money from the few acting roles or from you know. That's always my hope that when well, somebody's career seems to be has a strange gap, that you, I always hope that it's by design or by choice that- uh, Chris, you know. that's the essential goodness of your heart that hopes that that's true. I think, unfortunately, when we're talking about Hollywood, too often the case probably is that the industry just doesn't right. understand how to appropriately reward and create opportunity for uh, people like this too. I know it's gonna be, uh, I just have to play one more with Nell and sure. I clip. Um, this is the scene where they enter the most British of uptight tea shops after overindulging themselves. All right, here. What do you want? Cake. All right, here. No, we're closing. We're leaving, miss. One cake and tea. Didn't you hear? She said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see. We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the tapes. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. <laughs> we want them here and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. <laughs> All right. Miss Blenner has it. I'm warning you, if you do, you're fired. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place. And we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. I've been all you stiffs up a bit. The police, Miss Blenheim, has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith tea rooms and we want them removed. We are not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. Hurry up, Mebs. We'll keep them here till they arrive. It won't keep us anywhere. 
We'll buy this place and have it knocked down. Right, right, right. Please, please. Right. We're going. Our car's arrived. I love Paul McGann in that scene as Marwood, the yeah. the foil opposite of Richard E. Holmes Grant. Holmes to Withnail's, uh, yes. or rather Watson to Withnail's Holmes. When they sit down at the tea table, Paul McGann has the most hilariously amused smile on his face, which might actually be genuine, just yeah. at looking at what Richard E. Grant's character is doing. Um, I think no movie in for my generation inspired idiots like myself to behave poorly in public settings as yeah. much as Withnell and I. Totally. So a blanket apology for decades of people who've been subjected to um, to people behaving atrociously in public. Well, you know, I was just thinking when watching that that scene about that very question, because, you know, we, we I think we don't necessarily agree, but with can you ever forgive me, it's a question as to how much is it sort of um, – um, celebrating ex- or, celebrating yeah. these these terrible habits versus uh, versus um, sorry they, criticizing they, them versus criticizing them have some more coffee Chris and I wonder <laughs> it'll help with the synapse connections I wonder the same when watching this movie because you know when watching it you know it's so much fun to look at them having fun and to think about look at look at the old uh, codgers you know who just want to have their tea and yet at the same time. Those are small business people who are just trying to run a business who are getting harassed. And I, I guess any time when you're, when you're making a piece of art about that kind of, about somebody doing bad things, you want to have enough of the, the enjoyment of it to give some reason to, to stick with the character. And yet at the same time, you don't necessarily want to celebrate it. I, I, I forget, how does Withnail end? Do they... Oh, it ends where they they part, they separate, and um, and Withnail, you know, does Hamlet uh, for some zoo animals, and <laughs> and then walks walks away. I mean, it. I think Withnail and I has the benefit of being from Bruce Robinson's own personal experiences right. in the '60s, and the movie came out in what 1985 or something. So I think he's he has the benefit of wisdom and maturity. He's looking back yeah. on a time in his own life when he didn't know better. But I think the movie contains a certain wisdom about it in looking back. With the Lee Israel movie, you know, it's not the director or the writer's personal experiences, so it doesn't have that same personal touch, nor does it, frankly, have Bruce Robinson's supernatural ability to to do so many things in right. a piece of writing, such as critique society, critique class, uh, critique self-delusion, Delusions of grandeur, actual grandeur, friendship. Like he's doing so much with his writing that this movie just kind of can only get aspired. Yeah. And, you know, in, in watching it, the character of Withnail, and again, this is probably a problem with me, but somebody like um, Richard David, Bruce Davidson is able to take that character of Withnail and use it as a way to criticize those things without saying that Withnail is right or without flaws. Bruce Robinson. That Bruce Robinson. What yeah. did, what I, you said Bruce Davidson. Davidson. Who's that? I think that might be a journalist. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe just a different name. Uh, that Bruce Robinson. Isn't he the lead singer of, um, isn't Bruce <laughs> Davidson the lead singer of uh, the heavy metal band? Hey, this is Matt the Engineer. It seems that somewhere in the depths of Jason's brain lingers teenage memories of the most prominent members of the British new wave of heavy metal, the band Iron Maiden. In 1982, they released the Number of the Beast album, which featured their new lead singer, Bruce Dickinson. This was the album that broke the band in the States. Known for their galloping rhythms, like you're hearing here, and Bruce's crazy high vocals, he was nicknamed the Air Raid Siren by an irate fan who didn't like his voice compared to their prior singer, Paul Diano. Bruce's contributions define the classic Iron Maiden era. They're on the road doing their Legacy of the Beast tour, and they'll be hitting the States this summer. American actor Bruce... Oh, well, he's, he's an actor. Well, that's Bruce Davison. Who's Bruce Davison? Bruce Davidson, he's a character actor you will definitely recommend as soon as his- Davidson or Davidson? Well, I said Davidson, who I guess is an American photographer and a member of the Magnus Photos Agency since 1958. Oh, yeah, of course. Who doesn't? Oh, Bruce Davidson. Yeah, of course. Yeah. He was actually in, um, oh, he's great. You know what he was great in? I think he is, oh, maybe that's not him. Well, I know he was like- um, the Wait, evil senator. I think he's in Crazy Beautiful, which is a really good movie that I like. Yeah, Crazy Beautiful. He plays um, he plays the 
uh, congressman, right? Whose daughter is Kirsten Dunst. Is, is Kirsten Dunst? With, yeah, uh, and is going out with uh, Jay, Jay Hernandez. Hernandez. Good movie. He's good in that. Yeah, Bruce Davidson. He's um, a that guy. Well, he neither he nor Bruce Davidson, the photographer, <laughs> directed. Bruce Robinson did with and. Um, all that I meant to say was that yes. he does make a good, compelling anti-hero without making that anti-hero seem um, like somebody you should emulate. He does. Although, again, you know, if you don't watch it all the way to the end, yeah, it's like the, the same problem with um, Oliver Stone has talked about with uh, Wall Street. Sure. That everyone everyone adopts it as, as something to emulate rather than something to despise. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. again, that, that might be a hot, you know, a, or, an American character versus the uh, Britishness. Or Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which was taken as a fist-pumping anthem of American superiority when, in fact, it's completely the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, there you go. People are stupid, Chris. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> we know that pre- now. That, yeah. um, <laughs> now we know. <laughs> now we that's, finally know that. That's the fight. The in results are in. Results are in. Look, I'm completely and blatantly using this episode of the podcast to play clips from Bruce Robinson movies starring <laughs> Richard E. Grant. And this is the beginning of how to get ahead in advertising. Let me try and clarify some of this for you. Best company supermarkets are not interested in selling wholesome foods. They are not worried about the nation's health. What is concerning them is that the nation appears to be getting worried about its health. And that is what's worrying Bestco. Because Bestco wants to go on selling them what it always has, i.e. the white breads, baked beans, canned foods, and that separating, fat-squirting little heart attack traditionally known as the British sausage. So, how can we help them with that? Clearly, we are looking for a label. We need a label brimming with health, and everything from a nosh pot to a white sliced will wear one with pride. And although I'm aware of the difficulties of coming to terms with this, it must be appreciated from the beginning that even the nosh pot must be low in something. And if it isn't, it must be high in something else. And that is its health-giving ingredient we will sell. Which brings me to my final question. Who are we trying to sell this to? Answer, we are trying to sell this to the archetypal average housewife. She who fills her basket. What you have here is a 22-year-old pretty girl. What you need is a taut slob. Something on foot deodorizers in a brazier. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not quite sure we can go along with that, Mr. Bagley. I mean, if you look at like the market research, I don't need to look at the market research. I've lived with 13 and a half million housewives for 15 years, and I know everything about them. She's 37 years old. She has 2.3 children, 1.6 of which will be girls. She uses 16 feet 6 inches of toilet tissue a week and fucks no more than 4.2 times a month. She has seven radiators and is worried about her weight, which is why we have her on a diet. And because we have her on a diet, we also encourage her to reward herself with the little treats. And she deserves them. Because anyone existing on 1,200 calories of artificial synthetic orange-flavored waffle a day deserves a little treat. We know it's naughty, but you do deserve it. Go on, darling, swallow a bum. And she does. And the instant she does, the guilt cuts in. So here we are again with our diet. It's a vicious but quite wonderful circle, and it adheres to only one rule. Whatever it is, sell it. And if you want to stay in advertising, by God, you'd better learn that. So fucking yeah. good. How brilliant is that? And also, did you notice who was in that scene? No. Sean Bean is the guy who asks the question. Oh, no kid. I Wow. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. So this is one of the few roles where he doesn't die. <laughs> well... We have to watch the end the of, the movie, of the movie. But, um, <laughs> what's so great about how to get in advertising is um, Richard E. Grant plays essentially three roles, three versions of the same character. Yeah. Because the character that you just saw is who we meet at the beginning of the movie, who, Im- who embraces and embodies the art of advertising and all of its evil suppositions. And then he undergoes a comedic change of heart and becomes 180 degrees the opposite and- 
has a brilliant scene with Rachel Ward where he's ridding their entire home of anything yeah. that is advertised and doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And then, of course, as his boil, which he grows on his shoulder, takes over his entire body and ultimately convinces the surgeons to lance Richard his E. Grant, head. his actual head, and takes over. In the last scene of the movie, he's on a, he's literally on a horse riding majestically off into the <laughs> off into the countryside and de and declaiming the brilliance and the usefulness of advertising and and has become yet something again. I mean, God, the performances are incredible. I mean, to deliver these beautifully written soliloquies, uh, monologues, and and to do them with such humor and intelligence, that's why Richard E. Grant is being nominated up the wazoo yeah. for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Because few people have been able to do that so so well. In part, that's why when I watched his performance in this movie, I was a little let down after mm -hmm. knowing about all the nominations, thinking like, wow, great. I'm so excited to see a really chewy Richard E. Grant performance. I didn't feel like we got it in this movie. I see what you're saying, but though, though, like I said, to me, connecting the two and thinking of- Yeah, I mean, I, think there, I was trying to think of some other examples where we are collectively rewarding our experience of an actor. Right. You get your lap. Yeah. Someday you'll have your victory lap, Chris. If only I knew. What is the collective understanding of me? Well, you, you heard my understanding. Right. <laughs> um, those were the performances. Um, Let's see. Is there any, like, going back to the full cast and crew of, yes. of uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I keep thinking that it's Can You Ever Forgive Her? Because there was a play <laughs> off Broadway, I think, a year ago with that. With that title. Um, a lot of people in this movie with theatrical credentials, right? Steven Spinell, isn't he largely yes. a, a Broadway? Yes. God, he's so good. I mean, he why was in is the he original so Angels in America. Why is he so good? Why is he so funny in this role? What is it? What is that? What is he doing there? My guess is because I, I agree with he's so fun to watch. And I think it's like because he's wearing uh, a sweater vest and a tie and he's working at the bookstore. You know, so everything is a little bit sort of closed in, but the um, you could see how excited he is and like <laughs> that sort of humming energy being contained. Yes. And the, again, we're talking about, you know, autograph hunters and, and this kind of memorabilia is like, wow, this is a pretty uh, sort of niche thing. Yes. And for somebody to get that excited is in such a nerdy way, is, I think that's what he was capturing. I think you're right. It's sort of his vibrating energy of excitement over word. a little letter from... Noel Coward. Yeah. And it's witty bon mot. Anna DeVere Smith, as, as we had mentioned. She's hilarious. She's hilarious. Do you, Now, she also is a theater person. You know, sure. She had done a lot of uh, very socially conscious right. one-person shows. Yeah. was most of her, the beginning of her career. Mm-hmm. Uh, Town the Cat, we had mentioned. This Town, is Town, Town, Town the Cat plays Jersey the Cat. Oh, I didn't know there was uh, a cat actor. The, I forgot to look up the cat. Town, this is Town's film debut. Oh, so good we luck, look Town. forward to a lot, of, well, a lot more great things. Town did a very good stiff cat. Yeah. That's where, you know, I was neither here nor there about Town up until I saw it dead. And I was like, now that, that's a good cat actor. Um, another shout out I want to give to the movie is, um, since it's in my neighborhood, uh, Julius, Julius uh -huh. Barr, Julius is... I don't know if it's actually Julius is, because I think the bar is just called Julius. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, it's a gay bar in the West Village that has historical prominence. It's actually, I think, it's a bar that was involved in the Stonewall riots uh, or was certainly involved in the legislation that occurred to allow gay people to be served, as crazy as it sounds, in 1966 or whenever that yeah. happened, that you couldn't be served drinks. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's a real location, which is part of the old West Village, which is right. rapidly gentrifying and going away and as yet remains there exactly as it is exactly, in the movie. Yeah. It looks exactly like that. Um, and it's always had the welcoming vibe, even though it's a gay bar, it's had a welcoming vibe where if you were a drinking person in New York City, anytime from the, obviously the 50s or the 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you've probably stopped in there and had a couple of drinks over right. the course of your career. So Chris, if you don't have any other takes on that aspect of the movie, I would like to debut a new feature oh. that um, I have not even told you about yet. Fantastic. Would you like uh, to hear what it is? My takes, I'm going to throw them in the garbage. Who needs them? I want, I want a new segment. This is a new segment. This is called Entertainment News Headlines. 
And in this segment, Chris, I'm going to read you a selection, a carefully curated selection of today's entertainment news headlines. My thinking is, is that in reading you this selection, we are going to offer the listeners a picture of how insane the society is that we live in. <laughs> and this is a time capsule. Also, I'm, I'm curious to know how much of these references you will get in a few of these headlines. So we're going to start. Great. Travis Scott will join Maroon 5 uh, for the Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, I've heard of Maroon 5. Okay. Uh, I know what a Super Bowl halftime show is, but I don't know who Travis Scott is. Okay. Well, my second headline also features Travis Scott. Uh, second headline, Travis Scott says he and Kylie Jenner will, quote, get married soon. Quote, I gotta propose in a fire way, end quote. <laughs> okay. What does that mean to you? Uh, I mean, I've heard this fire, like... It's got to be fire. It's got to be right. awesome. Okay. Uh, Those glasses are fire, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> or sure, the opposite of fire. I'm sure Gustav Klimt got the same reaction. <laughs> Travis Scott is a rapper, just so you know, and he's going to marry one of the Jenner, uh, one of the Jenners. Okay. Moving on. All the details of Jay Wow and Roger Matthews restraining order drama. I've heard Jay Wow, but you I have? can't remember. Is what that you, Jersey Shore? Correct. Yeah. Good all job. Right. And Roger Matthews is, I guess, somebody who uh, needs a Husband order? of Jay Wow who needs a restraining, she needs a restraining order against. Let's see. Oh, here's a great one. Donald Trump recalls Green Acres performance before signing Farm Bill. <laughs> what a guy. I, I don't even want to click on that to find out what it is. Apparently, he did some sort of Emmy Awards Green Acres. I remember. I think he yes. was in during the during the election. They were they would show it a lot. It's sort of like Rudy Giuliani's drag. Oh thing. right, okay. They would show and it was him dressed as like a farmer. And I don't remember who the woman was. I think it might have even been somebody that he was he's feuded with. Sang a duet with him at some benefit. Yeah, it was. It was oh, it's Megan Mullally. Megan Mullally. She probably lived to regret that, huh? Yeah. Um, here's another good one. Bird Box review. Sandra Bullock is the best part of the Netflix thriller. I think we've talked about Bird Box. Did you watch the trailer? I've seen the trailer. I am so jaded and cynical, as I know that's a shock to you and all the <laughs> listeners, that um, it's hard for me to see this as anything other than a shameless exercise in attempting to ape the success of A Quiet Place. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we did You Can't Make Sound. Now we're doing A you Quiet Place, anything. but you can't see anything. Next give me a fucking break. Everybody's going to be stuffing cotton in their mouths because you can't taste anything. Of course. <laughs> Here's another good headline for you. Paris Hilton is keeping 20-carat engagement ring. She's going to keep it, huh? She's going to keep now, it. Now, that implies to me that the engagement she, is off. The engagement is off. <laughs> Monterey Aquarium slammed for fat shaming an otter. Well, yes, I'm I mean, sorry. How did they do it? I mean, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> I'm well, on the otter's side. Okay. Well, if you'd like to know how they did it, what they did was they posted to Instagram or social media a bunch of terms such as thick, which I don't know if you the kids use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. T h t h i c c, and they also so the tweet read: Abby is a thick girl. Two C's. What an absolute unit. She chonk c h o n k. Look at the size of this lady. Oh, Lord, she coming. Another internetism. That was a tweet from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which was, of course, immediately greeted with an outcry such as, this is the most pathetic tweet imaginable. Please delete this tweet. It is offensive. Even YouTube star Count Dankula was keen to have his say, retweeting the aquarium's <laughs> post with the caption, Having to apologize for calling an otter fat is peak 2018. And that, Chris, is probably the one and only time that you and I would agree with someone named Count Dankula. <laughs> the aquarium later posted that it had experienced, quote, a learning moment from the reaction to the tweet and apologized for any offense caused. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> I hope that poor social media intern did not get yelled at too much. Perhaps. Anyway, that's our first edition of the new segment, I Entertainment Headlines. Headlines. Do you like that? I'm very glad that we're doing it with Entertainment Headlines and not the regular headlines, because I did a quick scroll, and uh, you don't want to know. Well, I thought you don't about know what's happening out there. The Entertainment Headlines, for some reason, are the peak 2018 headlines. Yeah. And as I said to you before, when I was trying to think about like what's wrong with me in a grand sense, lately- like in the last week or so, and this may just be leading up to the holidays where I'm like, maybe I'm a little frazzled or burned out. I've been having rage over inane headlines like these. 
where I'm like, why is this a thing? And it's just, this is what people click on. This is what I want to click on and yeah. read about a fucking otter that was shamed on Twitter <laughs> and the outrage that ensued. And I, I'm just as bad as everybody else. It sparked me to think maybe that would be a funny segment. We'll see yeah. whether the listeners respond positively or not. Yeah, listeners, let us know what you think of what you think of this new segment. <laughs> uh, do we want to continue with the old segment of Rants and Rays? Oh, wait, so Rants and Rays. I didn't have any rants. My my rave section was all of the clips that you allowed was, me yes. to play from Richard E. Grant Which with Nell and I really and the other one. That's, was that was my pleasure. rave. Uh, yeah, I don't have any rants or raves. Do you? The only rave that I wanted to give was a shout out to my friend Daryl Taylor and the Taylor Network of Podcasts. Big fan and supporter of our Big podcast. Big fan and supporter. And I wanted to say thank you for that and also to recommend uh, his podcast Culture Trappin' and Gotham by Geeks. Gotham by Geeks is a Batman-focused podcast where they have a lot of interviews with creators as well as doing deep dives into Batman stories. Uh, and I think they're great. Um, and I wanted to say, like I said, thank you for, for the support and uh, for producing such great shows. Yes. Well, there you have it. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. So uh, until next week. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.